And now, Escaping the Drift, the show designed to get you from where you are to where you want to be. I'm John Gafford, and I have a knack for getting extraordinary achievers to drop their secrets to help you on a path to greatness. So stop drifting along, escape the drift, and it's time to start right now. Back again, everybody. Welcome to an episode of Escaping the Drift. And today, man, I got a good one for you. I'm not going to lie. Uh, this is a guy that I've been lucky enough to call friend for a while now. And it is always one of the most interesting conversations that I get to have. And luckily with the new format, I can bring him in via Zoom to talk to you guys today. And if you're somebody that is worried about risk or you're somebody that is uh, has an issue with risk, this guy is what I like to call the ultimate insurance policy for some very wealthy people around the globe. Um, this is a guy that hacked the NSA computer system at age 13, scored 197 on his IQ test, is the owner of Scorpion Computer Services, which the show Scorpion on CBS is based on. He actually had a cameo in that show and is an executive producer. He is an all-around super interesting dude. And uh, man, I'm so glad and so pleased we could have you on today. Welcome to the show, Walter O'Brien. Welcome, Walter. How are you, buddy? Doing good. Thanks for having me, John. Glad to be able to support the new format. I know scheduling-wise, we were never able to be in, be available in Vegas at the same time. Yeah, but but you know, this way, that's why I did it, man, because I could bring amazing content like you uh, to our listeners, and we're super excited to have you. So, first of all, man, let's start about uh, let's start talking about when you were a kid, right? So, I, I always like to ask questions like, what what you know, what would you attribute? Because obviously you're a very successful guy, and I, I would always like to go with what in your life, uh, as far as your upbringing, do you think led to you being you, man? Well, I think there, there's a few factors that are supported by most of the clinical psychology studies on this. Um, I didn't have a safety net, so my parents were not wealthy. We did not grow up with any kind of connections or contacts. So first, I had to figure everything out on my own. Secondly, I wasn't happy where I was. I didn't want to spend my life farming in the rain. Um, my IQ would have made that a pretty boring life. So, um, so I had to get out of where I was at, and I didn't have any safety net. So I had to go hard. What, what, um, what did your folks do? What, what, what do they do? What did mom and dad do? Farmers, um, originally dairy farmers. And we lived in a village of 300 people. And to this day, there's still not even cell phone reception there. How did you uh, find computers as a young kid? Um, I stumbled across them at, at my school, but I'd always been playing with puzzles and mazes and Rubik's cubes and other things that were logical my whole life. And then at the age of nine, I came across computer class where I started co learning to code turtle logos, what it was called at the time on an Apple II computer. Mm -hmm. And something clicked where I was like, ooh, this this uh, this makes sense to me, and I'm good at this. And the teacher noticed the stuff I was doing was far more advanced than what uh, they're used to seeing. So, um, yeah, that's what got me into it. And then, you know, I had to save up and for a year and a half try and get my first computer. Just, so, so I'm guessing the first way that you made money as a kid had something to do with computers. Yes. Is that the first time? Yeah. Well, I, well, after I got the computer, yeah. Um, it turns out other people, this was 87. So in Ireland, people were just starting to get computers and people needed help. Stuff was broken. Things didn't work and uh, they needed my help. And uh, I I charged a hundred bucks every time I fixed a problem. And that was... Uh, <laughs> You've been doing it ever since. <laughs> that kept me busy through till I started doing government work. 
<laughs> so essentially you've been doing exactly the same thing. Just the problems have gotten bigger and the fees have gotten bigger as we go along. Yeah, we adjusted our prices slightly. <laughs> so for those that, are, that don't know you, I mean, I hate, you know, one of the problems when you do this format, man, with somebody that, I, that I'm personally, uh, uh, that I know is I never want it to sound like an inside joke for our listeners. So I always have to kind of stop and, and take a step back and tell everybody exactly what it is that you do. Well, your intro was pretty accurate. I solve problems and now I solve bigger problems. So for my degrees were in artificial intelligence and computer science. And for years, I attracted together the best technologists and programmers to work with me solving problems for government and Fortune 1000 companies. And a lot of it mitigating risk. Um, so if you had a big company and you're a big bank or electric grid or pharmaceutical company, and you're like, I never want to go down. I never want to get hacked. Um, I don't want my stuff to break. I don't want my own guys to accidentally break my own system. So I don't want downtime. And human error for a working professional averages about 3%. Mm -hmm. So if you're an air traffic control system at LAX and you crash 3% of the planes, that's really bad. <laughs> so sometimes so you have to go beyond human error. You're like, I, I, humans make 3% error and I can't afford 3% error. So how do I beat that? And that's where other humans, other technologies, other AIs come into play. Well, I know that so we, what's well, funny, you mentioned the airport, because I know that on Scorpion, you have some influence with some of those stories. Is that something that happened? I, I, I saw an episode once, man, where it was like the planes were going to crash because their system was hacked. And, and did that happen? Yeah, we looked at the script for season one. It was about 70% accurate. In terms of the people, those people work here, the characters, the, the the stories are all based on true stories, but some of them mash together. Obviously, we don't always do it in 45 minutes between commercials, <laughs> but they'll change the name of the building or the place and then carry out the same story. So, um, yeah, most of those who know me or track the press online, the super fans have been able to match up each episode with real things I've done. Like episode two was related to identifying the Boston bombers, for example, the marathon bombers. Yeah. You did that. So, with, you were one of the, you were one of the pioneers of facial recognition. If I'm, if I'm correct by saying that. No, it wasn't facial recognition because we didn't know what their faces looked like, but ah. it's motion flow analysis, which is basically how do I identify non herd behavior when one person is not behaving like the crowd. Mm. So if the bomb goes off and everyone goes down, and then everyone gets up and then everyone heads in the same direction that they came from. Then if someone didn't go down, didn't act surprised and started wandering off in a different direction, they would stand out from the herd. And that that's how they were identified. And so you just, you just analyze the entire crowd to figure that out. Yes. Which then requires, we had 4,000 hours of footage from everything from people's cell phones, ATMs, et cetera. None of it's standardized, none of it from the same angle. So the other little algorithm I had to have was one that eliminated all the footage where nothing interesting has happened. <laughs> kind of so like this show. Narrow it down <laughs> to what we do need to see. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is if you had to analyze like this show was nothing interesting was happening, it'd be pretty quick and easy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, this episode good. But anyway, um, so here's so a question. We're, we're very advanced in image recognition in general, rather than just, um, just faces. But, but we do that for casinos and stuff. Um, but ju just to finish your point, so uh, when you ask, what do I do? So that, that's your typical technology company, or maybe not typical, maybe a little better than average. 
uh, for cybersecurity and infosec and so on. And then um, our wealthier customers started asking us for help with non-technical problems. You know, their daughter is anorexia, their mom has throat cancer, they want to choose a winning racehorse based on its DNA, just all these different requests we get. And even though they're not technical requests, they, they trust us as a think tank to figure things out for them. And we approach it in a very standard engineering way, gather the requirements, the budget, define what's done, remove single points of failure. So whether you get married or divorced, we'll try and optimize the outcome. <laughs> so I that did, led to me. Yeah, because you had told you had told me that everything comes down to an algorithm, essentially. Everything operates the same way. Like, oh, you're going to get divorced? We can plug that into the system and tell you the outcomes of how that works. And, and I yeah. thought that was fascinating. There's ways of, of exploring every possible outcome. Like, like what, we don't make any assumptions. So what citizenship are you? What citizenship could you be? Where are you located? How does that affect taxes and so on? Um, and, and then the same questions around your partner. And then figuring out, okay, how can we minimize the damage here? Yeah. And one of the things we do offer, which as far as I know, the public, the other company offers it to the public is PSYOPs, psychological operations. So that's where you put someone in effectively a Truman show for up to seven years. And they don't know that their neighbor is fake, that their business partner or the buddy they have coffee with at work is as a plant, um, that their mother-in-law is telling us everything that's going on with them and they are not aware of it. And that's useful for settlement strategies, punishments, rewards, whatever you need to have happen to other people. Can you uh, can you tell me? Can you tell the story? Because I love this story. Um, the Ukrainian gold digger and the billionaire's son. Can you tell that story? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> I never know it's okay. I don't want to put you on the spot. You feel free to tell me it's not okay. If you've heard the story, then it's probably okay. For okay. Me good enough. All right. Good enough. <laughs> we got pretty good firewalls on what we can talk about or not, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was a, a billionaire who had been a client of ours. His son fell in love with a Ukrainian gold digger. He wanted us to break him up before the wedding and not let him know that the father interfered. So we, again, approached it with our algorithm and profiled the son. He liked to go partying on sunset and show off to his friends and <clears throat> drive an Aston Martin and pretend he's James Bond. <laughs> so... We took another billionaire's son, uh, who was a client of ours, and the son was an actor, turned him into an agent, had him rent a mansion down the street, drive a similar car, wear a similar suit, rent a similar booth. Within a month, the two of them were fast friends. <clears throat> then we profiled the Ukrainian girl, loves to work out in the gym every morning, go to the same Starbucks. So we had another girl stand two, two spaces in front of her in line speaking loudly in her native tongue on her cell phone and the first day, but they didn't talk. Uh, two days later, we had her stand two positions behind her in line. Same thing, still didn't talk, but it built up some familiarity. And then we got an alert saying it was going to rain on that Friday. So we used LA casting to fill the entire Starbucks with <laughs> extras, except for one seat available next to our agent. Um, oh my God. She couldn't go outside and she had nowhere to go. So she sat with the other girl and they started, well, our girl started telling gold digger stories and how, how uh, naive Americans are. And eventually the other girl opens up and says the same, explains that uh, she was going to marry this billionaire son, get her I-94 and her green card coming threatened to embarrass the family, get a huge settlement, and then use the money to bring a real boyfriend over from the Ukraine. 
Now, our agent was wearing a wire, but that recording is not admissible in court. It's not for the father because he already knows. Yeah. He can't play it for the son because then he would know he interfered because we have to be invisible. So that recording was just for me because I have to know we're doing the greater good. If they were actually genuine and they're actually in love, then I would have walked away. But now the sheep fallen on the wrong side of my fairness algorithm. <laughs> so all bets are off. Which I hope I never do. <laughs> You you never know. No, yeah, so, no, 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 no. Part. The less I say is better. Go ahead. <laughs> you just uh, have weirdly bad luck for seven <laughs> years. Um, so she. Um, so then we we uh, thought about it a bit. We got a psychologist for the teenagers to write a speech of exactly the wrong thing for the father to say to the son. And then an acting coach to teach him how to say it. And then we text him a signal on a Thursday night to um, trigger an argument between them. And then the father delivered the speech. He did a good job. Son got all pissed off, went to his room, packed his bags, went down the street to his new friend's house. His friend was empathizing with him, saying, this is terrible. You should get revenge. You should get back at him somehow. He said, I'm leaving tomorrow on the jet. It's the Dominican Republic. My friend's getting married, but you're welcome to just hang here. So as he's packing his bag, it eventually dawns on the sun because of power suggestion. That's it. He should grab his girlfriend, have no prenup, uh, jump on the jet, go to Dominican Republic with him and get married. So that's what they did. So my friend had the first wedding happen, about 50, 60 people there. And then um, the, the other son asked a few people to stay and he went up and had their own, the second marriage. Um, and then while they're on the honeymoon, she's sending off a marriage certificate and filing for her green card and so on. And we let that settle for about six months or so, um, till her, her, uh, initial paperwork's coming through. She then decides to, um, embarrass the son, threaten to leak a bunch of embarrassing stuff about the family, unless he gives her a huge settlement. So... The son's friend says, I know a discreet um, divorce firm that can handle this, which was us. So the son sends her down to us for a divorce settlement. First time she was on time for a meeting in her life. I gave her the contract. She's flicking through it. She doesn't watch TV or the news, so she doesn't know who I am. And she, um, she says, this is an acting contract. And I said, I know. You recognize the name. She goes to the back page and turns white because it was the name of the priest. The first wedding was fake. The attendees were fake. And the second wedding was fake. The second letter I gave her we'd intercepted was from Homeland Security, banning her from the U.S. for 10 years for marriage, for a, a immigration fraud, because she submitted a fake marriage certificate from an unlicensed priest. The Uber was outside with her bags packed. We had a gag order for her to never talk to the son again. And then um, we uh, we had a handwriting expert write a dear john letter in uh, his hand or her handwriting and send it back to him saying she didn't want anything from him and never wanted to hear from him again so he did a big few and he's rebonding with the father who had never interfered <laughs> and that was that <laughs> so this is i mean like this is like real i mean you see you see the stuff in the movies and you're like ah man this is a cool story this could never happen and then and actually it does it just goes to show that uh again if you have enough money there's a lot of creative ways to solve problems. 
if it's a funded problem where you have over 10 grand to put towards it, yeah, then we can look at solving it. Just that you just have to have a realistic budget for whatever you're trying to do. You can't go to the moon for 10 grand, but yeah. maybe for a bit more than that, we can reunite you with your biological daughter who never got along with you or find your father, even though you were adopted or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I think it's pretty funny. The first time I met you, I don't know if you remember, but I don't know if you, you probably recall saying this, but the first time I met you, I was in a lawsuit, which is wrapping up. Thank God it's going to come to the end of it and, and we're going to win. And I told you I needed help with probably recovery of those funds. And you asked me how sophisticated the person was that was going to owe me this money. And I said, not at all. And you said, I don't care if he dug a hole in his yard and put the money in it, I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. This is our guy. This is exactly what we need to do, which I thought was exceptional. Um, let's get back to kind of a little bit about the topic of risk, man. If I'm your average everyday person, right? What am I worried about the most? Or what, what, it was, what is the unseen thing that I should be worried about that I'm not worried about? What is it, Walter? Scare the hell out of everybody. This is what you're good for. Here's what you're good for. Your right brain. Okay. So when we're born, we're generally left brain, right brain, 50-50. The emotional side is the right brain. The logical scientific side is the left brain. Mm -hmm. Based on our environment, mother's nurturing, et cetera, over time, we start leaning towards one side is more dominant than the other. And then depending on how how your environment works, uh, it becomes more and more dominant. So you could be 60-40, you could be 90-10. If you are right brain dominant fully, you have 97% chance of living below the poverty line in retirement, the less than 16 grand a year. If you're left brain dominant, you have a 70% chance of making medium income or above. So think about it. On the left brain, if you're a dentist, doctor, lawyer, engineer, scientist, programmer, even if you're terrible, you'll make 150 grand a year. Just because you're left brain focused. If you're right brain focused, you want to be an actor, a singer, a, a sound bath specialist and liberal says, arts degrees and you're hoping to be discovered one day and you have no understanding of statistical likelihood or backup plans or single points of failure or any of these basic concepts of statistical relevance you're basically going through life as a delusion you have no understanding of when does something become real you know if i know that the last 32 guys who graduated from my computer science class all made 150 grand then my odds are beyond reasonable doubt that i'll do the same mm-hmm. but if i have no concept or definition of risk or measurement then i'm just going to float around based on crystals and and uh <laughs> um astrology and wonder why things aren't working out astrology which honestly man there's there's so many people that do that i mean you know you look at uh, not successfully wealthy people that do that. No, no, no. Well, they were talking about what, what is the average what is the average income level of someone that buys lottery, lottery tickets, and it's very low. And, and I think it's that level of thinking, uh, you know, that you know, that it's got to happen to somebody. Maybe the dream happens to me instead of doing something to actually fix it yourself. It's just one of those things. Well, the lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. <laughs> okay, explain that. Well, the people who are good at math wouldn't play it. People who are bad at math are spending money on it and losing on average. So it's a tax. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the left, right brain thing. Is there a way that you can control which one becomes more dominant or is that just genetics? DNA? That usually happens before you become aware of it. It's not genetics because you're born at 50, but if you're aware of it, 
um, and you have enough brain plasticity left, because some of us can change after the age of 24, then you can be aware of it. So if, if I was an actor, for example, when I'm in front of the camera, I should be all right-brained all day long. But as soon as I step out from behind that camera and I have to deal with selecting my agent, managing my social media when I don't feel like it, analyzing my contracts, coming up with my tax strategies, figuring out what I'm going to do after 40 when no one hires me anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's all, all left brain. And if I use the appropriate brain at the appropriate time, then I'm going to be much more successful than if I'm just stuck in right brain mode and I'm going through my life with half a brain. See, I think that's interesting because you look at some of the really successful actors out there like Ryan Reynolds, who's made way more money with like boost mobile and then the, the gin he had. And now the new, uh, the mountain thing where you can buy uh, ads on Roku. I mean, he's making, he's a billionaire based on those brands that he leveraged. And I think if he was just worried about the quality of his next script, instead of being able to turn that on and be a good businessman, there's no way that happens. Well, I don't know him personally, but I'm guessing that he has staff, assistants, managers, someone running his schedule for him, the agents at CAA and whoever's repping him. Mm -hmm. And you guarantee they're left brain. Yeah. So if you win the lottery and you get lucky and you get picked out and then you get surrounded by a left brain crew to compensate for your right brain. Yep. Then you can afford to be a rock star consistently over time. It's a lot of the same reason people hire us. They hire us to be their left brain. I mean, how many companies and friends of ours do we know where they, they're marketing and salespeople yeah. who got luck? Yeah. Company, 30 million, 50 million, whatever it is. Billion, 900 million. They know they're going to lose it unless they suddenly kick in on operations, compliance, uh, protecting themselves from disgruntled employees. Like as soon as you make money, the hard part is keeping it. Yep. More so money, more problems. Those people, those people hire us to come in and be the adult supervision and discipline necessary <laughs> to stay in business <laughs> because otherwise they, they won't. The, the likelihood is that it'll take them down at some point. Yeah. I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a, uh, a phrase for that. I call it failing. I call it failing. Uh, what was what I say? Jesus, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, uh, I just absolutely for the first time in the history of this. So I get you on here and I'm trying to be all intelligent and I just completely space what I was going to say, but it's like failing forward. There's a lot of people that do that. They, they're failing, but they're oh, failing profitably. That's what I say. There's a lot of people in business that start stuff and they fail profitably. You know, they make money, they're doing the right things, but they don't realize all of the things that, that they're lacking in. They don't realize all of the problems. They don't get it. Well, they don't calculate the opportunity cost of what they're missing. So even in where they move to, you know, they might be like, oh, here's a nice house with a nice garden. I'm going to move here 50 miles outside the city. And then realize that the entire network of people they accidentally bumped into that made their career in the first place has been cut off now. Mm -hmm. Um so calculating opportunity costs is something they don't factor in. And there's a great book called Fooled by Randomness that talks about this, that you can get lucky a few times and then think it's all you and it's all skill and it's all talent mm -hmm. until it runs out and you're fooled by your own randomness. Yeah. I tell you know, people, so, living in Vegas, I tell people that all the time, that, that move here, whatever. Um, Vegas exists based on that, you know, you, oh, you, God. people who walk on a roulette table or look at the odds on something and say, well, 
you know, it's, it's due to land on red now because it's landed on black three times. And it's like, well, it's not due anything. It's random every single time. Doesn't care. Yeah. I tell people the worst thing that can happen to you moving to Vegas is, is go to the casinos the first couple of times and win. It's like the worst thing that can happen to you because then you're like, oh, this is easy. This is great. I mean, one time my sister and I stopped in Shreveport, Louisiana on a long drive for the night because it was just the best place to stop. And there was, you know, we stayed at the casino because in Shreveport, it was the nicest hotel. And when I'm like, oh, come here, I'll teach you how to play craps because just to have fun, right? Just whatever, goofing around. And we didn't, you know, playing low stakes, whatever, goofing, but she just was killing it. She was like, oh my God, we should come back every weekend. I'm like, oh, it's not, oh, this is like a fluke. It's not like this. This is just for fun. And I think that's the problem is those right brain people just start to assume, well, it's just me. I'm lucky. Well, I don't know if you remember or not, one of the biggest computer conferences in the world used to be Comdex in Vegas, where all the software people come together, Bill Gates and mm -hmm. Michael Bell and Steve Jobs and all, Larry Ellison. He's speaking at it, and I've presented a couple of times there. And the hotels would, would compete over who gets that business, who gets to host the conference, because you get all these dot-com, very wealthy people in the late 90s. And um, the hotels are offering the rooms for almost free just to attract all of these millionaire programmer dudes. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to the manager of the hotel afterwards. He's like, biggest mistake of his life. Because they all got up every morning, walked straight through the casino. All of them knew math, so nobody gambled. No, didn't play went to the Turned around, went straight back in the evening. Maybe they watch a magic show or something, but the casino made no money oh, because they all understood math. Like, I'm not doing that. Is there any yeah. game in a casino worth playing? Any of them? If you're going to play for entertainment, what's the game? There were some I could consistently beat because of the flaw in the machines, but they've replaced most of those machines by now. So, okay. But if I'm playing uh, a table, if you have, okay, if I say Walter, just for fun, Let's go play a table game where we can play for a while. Not, maybe not we're going to get rich, but we're not going to get beat up quick. What's the game? Well, your two options are the biggest uh, odds would be playing blackjack and always holding on 16 or just bet it all on red or black, which you don't have a 50-50 chance of because of the other squares. It's like 49 chance. Yeah. But if you bet big once, and then you either walk away with a lot or or you don't. And that's it. I uh, that's the only, so you have a 49% chance and that's the best shot you've got. She said, hold on 16. 16. Yeah. Because there's more than 50% chance of getting above a seven in the next card, which means you, you go bust. Cause most people stand 17. They don't stand 16. They'll hit a 16 against a face card. Most people will. Hmm. I don't know. Weird. Interesting. Wild things. Um, back to risk. Back to risk that I'm walking around. Now, I know the, the right brain, left brain stuff is stuff that you can't really control. But in life in general, what are some things that we can do to be less, to, to help manage risk on a day-to-day -day basis, not necessarily the giant problems, but just on a day-to-day, -day, like if you had to give somebody a real quick 10-minute risk seminar, what would it be? Well, Understanding philosophy on risk, first of all, only an idiot repeats the same mistake twice. A normal person will learn from their own mistakes. A smart person will learn from someone else's mistakes. And a genius will avoid the mistake in the first place. Now, you want to decide where do you want to be on that food chain? <laughs> I, think, I think I know where everybody wants to be, but do they have the ability to be there? Uh, well, being aware of it is a good start. Yeah. The next thing that's useful then is post-mortem analysis. So let's say I make a mistake and I, I lost my keys to the car. Mm -hmm. 
so for some people are like, okay, well, you know, I should have had spare keys and maybe they'll get spare keys. Maybe they won't. So that's the first level of correcting the mistake. That if you got spare keys, I take that further. I go, okay, that's the mistake. Now, what are all the sibling mistakes of that? Well, I should have spare keys to everything. All, all my cars, all my houses, et cetera, make sure I have spare keys. Mm-hmm. But then what's the lesson behind the lesson? Well, the lesson behind the lesson there is don't have a single point of failure. Yeah. So now let's look at my life and see where else I've got single points of failure that may not be keys. So now I've not only learned from my lesson, made sure it didn't happen twice, made sure all similar issues don't happen twice, but then stepped back philosophically and went, what did I learn from this that could apply to the rest of my life? Yeah. I think that extra step is where is where most people don't do that. I'm being honest with you. I probably don't do that. That's that's great to look at that. I think that single point of failure is what gets so many people in trouble. That because how many people are single income? How many people are, you know, so dependent on uh, a single account for their business or a single everything? You know, or they married. Just, <laughs> well, Walter, no, some, look. Well, I know your feelings very well on the, on the institution of marriage. I know they are. I've met. Oh, uh, correction, not my feelings. Your feelings, your feelings. The statistics from the Census Bureau on two million marriages. <laughs> not a feeling. All right, not a feeling. I, I know. Okay, then I know the statistics on that. Luckily, at this point, I've been will, I've been lucky enough to buck those those statistics. There you go. But I understand, man. Sometimes, just uh, if if the pool, if the if the chances of drowning are pretty high, stay out of the pool. I get it. <laughs> I get it. Uh, but yeah, having that single point of failure in people's lives, I think, is uh, eliminating a many, as many of those as possible, I think, is, is a great lesson uh, to go forward. I think that's awesome. Well, how many people, how many of you have a company where you've got one tech guy who's got yeah. all the passwords, knows how everything works, knows how everything's installed, nothing's documented. And then as we, we got triple the size during COVID because that one guy got a got brain fog or got COVID and then the whole company ground to a halt. And then we had to go in and unravel or rehack or figure out where, how things used to work with, with no documentation. Um, so yeah, it, it's worth applying that to your business too. Who can you not live without? And why aren't they backed up? Yeah. I think the best thing I tell people for business is any employee that you have, and this is a good, good, good exercise for them. If you're paying them, ask them to write a manual about their job and just say, look, I need this because what if you get hit by a bus? You know your job better than anybody in the world. So God forbid something happened to you. I want to have this manual so I can just pick up and run and have all of your employees, anybody you're paying do that, I think is a good idea. Uh, uh, it's a good idea. Would you like the better one? Yes, please. So we do, we provide a service for customers called Code Escrow. Okay. And that's where once a month or so, we'll take a copy of all the source code in the company, move it into our own area in the Amazon cloud and try to reproduce production. So to reproduce your website, your podcast, your structures, you get everything up and running your shopping cart and so on. And only if we get it working, this fake copy of everything, do we know that we have everything, that we're not missing anything. Because you can back up all your code, but no idea how to restore it. You can restore it, but no idea how to install it. You can install it, but no idea how to set up your firewall. So how do you know that that person's manual they wrote 
is correct, isn't missing anything. They didn't make assumptions going, oh, well, I assume they knew how the firewall works that I set up 10 years ago. Yeah. How do you validate then that that manual they wrote is up to date and works? And the only way to do that is reproduce production. So once a month, we'll reproduce production and then we'll shut it down. But you're, so you're, doing, you're doing this with online business, anything that's online. You can't do this with a brick and mortar. You can't do this with what? Can you do this with a brick and mortar business? Like all my businesses are brick and mortar. Yeah, there's versions of that called uh, BCDR, uh, Business Continuity Disaster Recovery. So if it's a brick and mortar business, it's a case of, okay, once a quarter, everyone stay home. Mm-hmm. Now, you have each other's cell phone numbers. Can you reach each other? Can you dial in to get whatever you need? Let's pretend there was a terrorist attack or a chemical spill or an earthquake at the brick and mortar business. Mm-hmm. How much can you salvage and operate and, and work without getting into the business? Can everyone reach each other and contact and come up with a plan and know what to do? And if you practice that every quarter, then then when it really happens, it's a hell of a lot smoother than if you talked about it once and then never did it for 10 years. Which is what most people do. And they don't even have each other's cell phone number because they always saw each other at work. So business continuity, that's a big part of what Scorpion does. Those, 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 those plans, those systems, that's a big part. Yeah. Uh, so if you, if you think about the theme of what I'm talking about, quality assurance, business continuity, compliance, avoiding liability, avoiding single points of failure, it's, it's all the defense stuff. Yeah. And the problem with right brainers is they're all about offense and nobody wins the Super Bowl with only offense. <laughs> So we're the defense, uh, man. That's it, it, it's it's so you funny. You don't take a step backwards. You're only taking a step forwards. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I think that, in my opinion, right? I think most great businesses that are people businesses that involve other people. You've got most of the people at the helm that are good at that are salespeople. They're, they are very heavy right brain. They are very, very charismatic, very salespeople, blah, blah, blah. They're that people. And I always call that. And I literally, in everything on my coaching, everything I do, I refer to that as offense. And I always talk about defense being as important. Like you've got to make sure your defense is, is strong there as well. And I think a lot of businesses like do, do do that. You talk about get spun up and these guys have an idea and they get very excited and they put it up and then it happens and then boom, it hits. And then before you know it, it's snowballed into this giant business without a lot of those fundamentals that should have been built that need to have somebody come in the back door and do. Well, there's a few reasons to do it. If Let's say you have spun up that business and then you want to, what are you going to do? You're going to sell the business at some point. Yeah. And if you're going to sell it, then the business is the product. Yeah. And, and that product can't be just your charisma and you're a good salesperson. You need actual intellectual property, actual operations, process, procedures, manuals, flow, code. They have to buy something. Yeah. So your valuation of the business will be sorely hurt if they turn up and all it is is tribal yeah. knowledge in staff's heads plus one charismatic salesperson. That business is not worth much. Yeah. So we come in and fill in the business so they can actually buy an operating factory that pumps out money. Mm-hmm. And since we're the ones usually used to do the due diligence on that, we know exactly where all the bodies are buried, where, what to look for, the skeletons in the closet. We effectively audit you from the inside and then fix our own audit till you're you're looking good. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, it's so funny because you talk about <clears> – <throat> you talk about business people and one of the biggest problems I think that successful people have that are success that are failing profitably. I like to say is they don't really realize they have these problems because ego gets in the way. 
How often do you bump in with people that you're like, you can look at this in like five minutes and you're like, bro, I see all of these problems that you have that need to be rectified, but you're, their ego gets in the way of being able to say, wow, I need help. How often does that happen? Um, a lot. So uh, there's a standard conversation I have with them. I mean, I, I will ask the CEO, do you believe it's possible you could be wrong? Now, if they say, nope, I'm always right, then I'm like, nice to meet you, best of luck, and then I'll go short the, short the stock. But <laughs> if um, if they say, no, of course I could be wrong, then my next question is, who in your life is actively motivated to tell you when you're wrong? Your family's not going to. Your staff's mortgage depends on it. Your board don't really know what's going on in detail. So who's around you to tell you when you're wrong if you know you could be wrong? And those self-aware CEOs understand the value of that conversation. I'm like, I'm going to form a group in a governance structure of the smartest people in your company, and their job is to veto you and tell you when you're wrong and yeah. say no when, you, when you're trying to do something dumb. And either you think you're smarter than your top six people or you're humble enough to realize you're probably wrong if they all think you're wrong. Yeah, well, you become the, the, a real consigliere to them, like strict godfather style. Like, I'm going to tell you I, where you're screwing up. Yeah, I end up in a lot of mentoring situations. It's not necessarily that I'm always right. It's that let me take the people in your business that you don't talk to very often, The what I call the boiler room folks, mm -hmm. the, the folks on the ground, the folks who've been there 10 years, the ones in the stocking room and doing inventory in the back, the people everyone else goes to when something comes up that wasn't in the training manual. Let me put those guys in a room, set up a retaliation bubble, which means you can't fire them for the next five years, no matter what they tell you, mm -hmm. and then set up a structure where they can tell you what you're doing that's dumb, and you can't be mad at them for it. And that's the most, and when a CEO embraces that, it becomes the most valuable thing ever. And what ultimately happens is the CEO will attend a few of those meetings and watch the decisions those people make about running the business and realize that those decisions are superior and better thought out than the CEO could do on their own. Yeah, because they're they doing the work. <laughs> they ultimately feel re relieved then and they're like, wow, I could go on vacation for two weeks. And the chance of all these six people being wrong is lower than the chance of that person being wrong on their own. Yeah. So they have to get more sleep, get to relax, get to think, get to be strategic and, and get to move away from micromanaging the business once they know this other virtual person called governance is managing it for them. And, you know, for the people that go through that whole rehab program, they're very thankful to me at the end because they have a valuable business. They're not stressed running it. And if they wanted to sell it, it's actually worth something. Yeah. Wow. Um let's say I've got a small business, right? Let's say I, let's say I have a business. What is the most, in, in a small business, I'm going to say like, let's say I'm an independent contractor. I'm, like, I'm a realtor, dude. I'm somebody, that, my own business, I'm selling stuff. What is the number one place where you think I should focus my energy into figure out where I'm leaking in my business or the controllables that aren't there or generating new business? Neither. Um, because both of those depend on you. Okay. So three priority, there's 22 priorities in life to be successful and have to be put in the right order. But for the sake of this podcast, let's just focus on three. Okay. Number one, don't get worse. Don't get back, go backwards. So don't lose your business, your contacts, your money in the bank, your friends, your laptop, your, you don't get hacked. Don't, don't have your place burned down without fire insurance. 
don't have a car accident, don't have car insurance, just protect yourself to not get worse. Number two, seek and motivate validated sources of wisdom. Go out and find people who've done better than you in whatever area they're advising you on and come up with a way, whether you're paying them or being friends with them or whatever, to motivate them to want to talk to you and be around you. Mm -hmm. And number three, then, go make the most money possible with the least amount of time from three unrelated sources. So when COVID hits, it doesn't. It only takes out 33% of your income, not 100% of your income. Right. One can be your passion business, and two can be what we call dumb businesses. Something, you know, parking lots, coin-operated laundrettes, laundrettes, something yeah. that doesn't require people, hopefully. Yeah, I, I love I love those simple businesses. I think they're great. I was trying to buy a... Yeah, I just, I love simple businesses. I think they're, they're Well, if a smart person runs a dumb business, it, it can be very effective. Yeah. Um, so my point in all of this is seeking wisdom with your time and getting those, that, that right consultancy around you mm-hmm. is what will tell you whether you should increase sales, outsource it, quit the business, sell it quickly, fix it, put operations in or whatever, because you know, you should only take advice from those you would swap lives with. So find some people you would swap lives with. If other people are making more money with less stress, then your primary, your 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 first priority should be how do I learn from those people? Because otherwise, you're just guessing where which area you want to work harder in. Right. All right. Let's, let, let's let's do a let's do a real world deal. So like. Let's say you built your business up and I'll give you, let's, let's play real world with me. I'll be, you know, my, my, my honors, my listeners know I'm honest. So like our real estate company is, is, is a behemoth, right? It is a, uh, it's, it is, it is very high ranking, very successful, very big numbers. And when you score as high as we do on the chart, when, when you, when you hit the top of the charts, like we have in this, I feel like we become bulletin board fodder for every up and comer. Like they're just like, that's, that, that's the company I want to, I want to go for That's the, I want their people. I want their, their culture. I want their stuff. So it always kind of feels like, you know, these other companies are kind of nipping at our heels, right? Kind of nipping. Like you lose a couple people here to go to there and you're like, oh, okay. Lose a couple people there. And you're like, huh? So how do you bulletproof when you get to the top of whatever it is you do? How do you bulletproof your company in a way that you stay there? Well, depending on the longevity, if you wanted them to stay there for 999 years, there's a way of doing that. But if we look at it shorter, what if you promise them there's a few ways to do what they call matching trusts. So let's say I'll double everyone's salary, but I'll pay it to them over three years. So if you're making 100 grand a year now, I'll pay you 200 grand a year, but the second 100K will be paid out over the next three years. So anyone who tries to get that person to leave your company would have to pay them over 200% of what they're worth because they're already promised that other money to be paid out over the next three years. And you just roll that every year? Yeah, you you do the math on it and you roll it over. So they, they're, and if you roll it over every year, then they're walking out on guaranteed money at any point if they ever leave. Yeah. So, but at year three, aren't they actually making double what they were going to make? Well, no. Well, year three, they're collecting what they made three years ago. They're collecting. So they're making a third more each year. 
than the hundred K they had. So you have to pay them 33 grand more. So you just keep replicating this out over, over to the future. You keep pushing it out over time. So the second year they still made hundred K, but you doubled it 200 K, but you pushed it out. Hmm. So essentially um, you are paying them. You're just incentivizing them to stay. You're just paying them slower and, and you're incentivizing them to stay. Uh, so you're paying them better than they would have been paid, but you're paying them slower. Um, you can also set up a matching trust in the business. So there's things called a dynasty trust, uh, which I think is legal in Vegas as well, which can be a 999 year trust. And that way you can set up all kinds of matching incentives to imagine hundred percent commission where they, they, they'll get doubled whatever they brought in. Because if they bring in a hundred grand, you give them a hundred grand, but again, paid out over time. If you have a, a board of trustees, who run the business after you've you passed away and you want the business to run as a legacy forever, then you take out life insurance on those trustees. As each of them pass away, the life insurance pays back into the pot yeah. that everyone's pulling from. And if you're not there, then the margin you would normally take, if you're taking a 30, 40% margin or whatever, you don't need it because you're not around. Right. So that margin is used to retain the staff. Hmm. So again, it just depends on the goals. On the particular of- situation. What do you mean by longevity? Well, cool. Well, give me, as we, as we wrap this up, we're at about 43 minutes right now, but give me one more, one more Walter story that I would normally get over a cocktail. It's like this one time this happened, this hit people would just think is crazy. Give me one more. Well, um, let's say you needed to choose a winning racehorse. Okay. For, for- Horse racing. If we took the DNA from seven years of winners and seven years of losers and then compared that DNA, you could figure out what the winners have in common called statistical regression. If you study them biomechanically and figure out that the thigh bone is basically what drives the horse for speed, then the the DNA that leads to a stronger thigh bone is what's important. If there's 34% injuries because of the front legs, then you want to be able to reinforce the front legs or have the horses run at an angle so that if they're running uphill, the front legs are less likely to be injured. If they're born at a higher altitude, which is why Ethiopians win so many marathons, then their lungs will process oxygen more efficiently. So when they're then brought to a race and running on the flat, the air is richer and it's easier for them because they train by going uphill. Um, so effectively, like the movie Moneyball, you can take any situation, break down all the variables, isolate them, compare them, and then start optimizing. And um, yeah, any money we don't make on the project, we can make betting on the horse. To <laughs> and, then, and then you probably make more money betting on the horse than working. Did you bet the horse? Well, there's no, there's no limit on how much you can bet. <laughs> That's a good point. There is a limit on how much you can make. Well, if you guys have a problem, if you're out there and you have a problem more than $10,000 that you need solved, and literally, as you heard from today, any problem, anything you got. Uh, Walter, how do they find you, buddy? How do they find you? The shortcut is concierge Okay. Because normally you're concierge down. Things are too easy for to do yourself. Yep. Or scorpioncomputerservices.com. But you just go there and you type in a little paragraph on your problem. 
Mm-hmm. You select the budget range that you have available for it, and you hit submit, and we'll have somebody get in touch. And that's as easy. And, it's um, as easy as that. And that's how we work. I mean, you don't know what your problem costs. We don't know what your problem costs. So that's why we work on a retainer basis, like a law firm. You put down a deposit, and then we'll work together every week transparently. And if you're, there's no tricks and no tie-in, you can hire us today and fire us tomorrow and get your deposit back if you don't don't want to move forward. But if you think it's going somewhere and you like the intelligence of the people you're talking to, then you just put in enough deposit to get the job finished. And that's it. All right, last question before we get off. AI going to kill us and when's it going to happen? <laughs> well. <laughs> do, do you know what, do, you don't have to answer that if you want to. I know you know. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, if you, if you look at the way things are headed, uh, we have atomic level MRI scans now of the brain and uh, Elon's doing some good work with Neuralink on being able to access the brain directly. Some of you may have seen the, the chimpanzee playing Pong without uh, the joystick being plugged in or just reading it straight from the brain. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of a computer brain direct interface. Um, so eventually we'll be able to map our brains and upload them into the cloud. And if we do that, our brains become the learning corpus for AI, like like we've seen with ChatGPT learning from the internet. Mm-hmm. So I think it's less about it killing us It'll make us redundant and maybe 47% unemployment, but what would happen is ultimately we become the corpus for the AI and we merge. We merge. Yeah, because if you upload the brain, if you can back it up or download it into stem cell clones, then there's no concept of kill or dying or mortality anymore. Because you would we just are, exist. We are just, yeah, we are just elect- electricity running on a biological computer. If you move that to running on a silicon computer, then you don't have to die. So we're all going the to the matrix. So we're going to the matrix, is what you're saying. We're going in the matrix. If we're not already in it, but yeah, <laughs> at least this time we'll be sure. Oh my God. Okay, well, Walter, brother, thank you so much, man. It's it's always such a pleasure, not just to see you, but to hear your interesting stories and talk to you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks. for the good question. Thanks, buddy. We'll see you soon. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us for another episode of Escaping the Drift. Hope you got a bunch out of it, or at least as much as I did out of it. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the show, you can always go over to escapingthedrift.com. You can join our mailing list. But do me a favor, if you wouldn't mind, throw up that five-star review. Give us a share. Do something, man. We're here for you. Hopefully, you'll be here for us. But anyway, in the meantime, we will see you at the next episode.